the air was normally filled with sounds of people at work or shoppers toting their bags down the sidewalks of Main Street, people chatting over maybe coffee or lunches on the little cafe patios. It was a quaint little place, small town, middle America. Down each little neighborhood street you ventured into, you could always find some kids playing outside. But this day was different. There was a spooky silence. The streets were empty, businesses locked up. The scene was eerily reminiscent of the beginning of any good zombie movie. Only this was real life. And no one dared venture out of their homes for risk of being infected. The year was 1918 in Sublet, Kansas. It was the epicenter of the pandemic. The virus had sp spread more quickly and was more devastating than anyone had first imagined. And many people had already died from it before it ever was called anything at all. But it would later be named the Spanish flu. And it went on to infect a third of the world's population, killing more people than any other outbreak in human history. And get this, in only a four-month time span. In that year alone, the average lifespan in the U.S. dropped by 10 years. Now, can you imagine the paranoia that had to have set in and how it just became a part of everyday life back then. The normal routines completely altered in order to guard themselves against infection. Because you see, everybody began to understand that there was no one immune. And there was no such thing even as a safe exposure for the situation was deadly serious. It's the same kind of situation that the Apostle Paul will face us with in Ephesians chapter 2. For he will begin to speak of sin as something that completely infects our life. So much so that no one is immune. And that there is no such thing as just a safe exposure. It was deadly serious. But of course... The difficulty in talking about sin in our society is that it often doesn't reach such levels of paranoia. Have you ever heard of someone talk about sin almost as if they're immune from it? Or, or maybe you even have seen some kind of sin in a person's life just devastate them. But yet, for whatever reason, maybe you've thought that it couldn't possibly have that same kind of effect on you. Or we're probably all prone to thinking at times that although we may have a sin maybe in one area of our life over here, well, it certainly couldn't affect our whole life. Almost 
as if that sinful infection won't spread to the entire body. It's what we will always tend to do. For we will take sin, and what we do is we try to downplay the effects. Oh, it's, it's not as bad as it looks. Like Adam and Eve did in the garden, we attempt to make a cover-up for sin. You've likely seen this with your own kids, right? <laughs> when you suspect that they have done something wrong, you might ask them, did you do this? Right? And because of their love and their trust in you as, parent, as a parent, of course, you know, you would assume that they're going to tell you the truth. I can remember one time uh, my wife and I asked our two kids if they had snuck and eaten more Halloween candy. Even after they had been told no more, they were cut off. We specifically asked them if they had eaten any blue raspberry suckers. And with the brightest neon tongues you can imagine, they said, of course not. <laughs> or even when you catch your kids red-handed, right? So it's no longer like a question. It's more of a statement. I saw what you did. Well, how often do they respond to you by saying something like, oh, dad, it's not what it looks like. Mom, it's not as bad as you think. And don't you just find that insulting to your intelligence? Your tongues are bright blue right now. I'm pretty sure it's exactly what it looks like. <laughs> and Paul, in our section of scripture here, is basically, basically going to say, listen, sin is exactly what it looks like. In fact, you know what? It's probably even worse than we thought. If you got your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you can read along with me. He says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. And so Paul paints this stark picture here of a pandemic of sin, like a virus that has spread and infected all of mankind. And it causes death in every one of its cases. It may be even worse than we thought. And just as we might downplay the effects of a virus, maybe we might call it, you know, a little bug. So too, we can do the same thing with sin by learning to call it some other names. <laughs> In fact, you know, one of the most popular words that we will exchange for sin oftentimes is 
mistake. Because a mistake is something that sounds so much nicer than sin, doesn't it? A lot of times when we say that we made a mistake, you know what we're really trying to communicate? Is that it may have been our fault, sure, but we're not to blame, right? You know, it's ah, my bad. It was just a misunderstanding, a, a miscalculation, that's all. And so you can't be mad at me for making a mistake. You see, you don't just go punishing someone for a mistake. I mean, your spouse bumps into the wall, knocks off a picture frame. It falls to the floor and shatters. Now, I use this example because I tend to be the victim of loosely hung pictures in my home. (laughs) And my wife, well, she may be bummed, even frustrated, but she can't take that out on me. I mean, after all, it was just a mistake. You know, it's funny, we love the idea of a mistake so much that we have even coined the phrase, an honest mistake, right? And we say this whenever we really want to communicate that it's not as bad as it looks. And of course, that's not to say that there is no such thing as a mistake. It's just that we ought to be very careful about allowing the concept of a mistake to affect how we view ourselves and how we view God. Because if we try to convince ourselves that our sins are nothing more than mistakes, well, we will assume that all we have to do is try harder, to be better. And you know, God, he should be pleased with that. But Paul warns, that our sinful nature is much more life-threatening than that. It causes death. And we have no hope of saving ourselves from the sickness. Our hope can only be in God. You know, I think it's noteworthy that the Bible never calls us mistakers. It only calls us sinners. For we don't just make mistakes against God, but we sin against him. Because what sin really is, is it is an act of rebellion. Again, kids, (laughs) such a great example. (laughs) Because there always comes a time in a child's life when they probably think, you know, mom, dad, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not quite sure that you mean it, right? It's what child psychology will call testing the boundaries. You may have given some threats or you may have told them about some punishments, but they have yet to discover how seriously you are going to take their mistakes. Many years ago, after dropping my son off at school, Um, my daughter and I went to run some errands. And we were stopped at the stoplight. It turned green. The truck's tires had just begun to roll when I suddenly heard, click, 
Now, you know, as a parent, I really believe that one of our giftings is this acute awareness of the difference between a good click and a bad click. And this sounded like a bad click to me. And so I asked my then four-year-old daughter, um, what was that? Oh, and there was no cover-up. No, she said proudly, just my seatbelt. So I had to pull over to the side of the road, and I explained to her very lovingly that she needed to wear her seatbelt because it would protect her, and Daddy always wants to keep her safe. And then I so politely asked her, now would you please put your seatbelt back on? And she told me, no, I don't want to. Oh, now this is the moment that we all fear, right? <laughs> because we can sense a possible standoff coming. <laughs> and with all, we're still next to the school and with all the teachers and, and the students still all out there watching. And the cars slowly rolling by, I did the most reasonable thing that I need, knew to do. And I just simply tried to delay the consequences. I didn't want an awkward situation. And, and so I reached back myself and I buckled up her seatbelt real quick. I figured we're going to deal with this once we get home. Crisis averted. So I drove back out onto the road and I heard another click. And so I pulled back over. And this time, as a dad, I used my stern face. And I said, you do not unbuckle your seatbelt again. Do you understand me? And then I quickly reached back again. I, I buckled it back up. And we were on our way. And I pulled back out on the road. And then for the third time, I heard that click. Oh, and at that point... You know, I was so frustrated. I didn't care where we were at. And I didn't care who was going to watch or possibly judge me. I was going to get my daughter out of the truck and she was going to get the punishment that she deserved. Because listen, it is not, whether it's your four-year-old daughter or maybe it's your 16-year-old son, it's not a mistake that leaves you feeling angry even betrayed. No, it is when they have willfully rebelled against you. And as a parent, whether we act on it or not, of course, we know that they deserve the full parental wrath that could possibly come down upon them. It's when we might even lecture, especially when they're teenagers. Who do you think you are? Right? What makes you think you have the right, the freedom, to rebel against me as your parent? Oh, they've, they've sinned against you. See, that is what sin is. It's why the very first sin in the Garden of Eden was so devastating. You know, when you read through that story found in Genesis chapter 3, we can look at it on the surface and say... You know, was it really that big a deal? 
I mean, come on, they took a bite of an apple. I mean, sure, you know, God told them not to, but it was only a piece of fruit. I mean, it was just, it was just like a mistake. Oh, but God, he, well, he responds pretty severely. Because, of course, it wasn't about the action. It was much more about the heart. See, it was a willful rebellion. It was them staring God defiantly in the face and saying, no, I'm going to do it my way. And from that point on, that rebellious heart towards God became like a virus that has infected all of mankind. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I'll just put it up on the screen for you. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, that the heart is deceitful above all things, and it is desperately sick. It's never pretty to look at, but it's absolutely necessary to see the sickness of our sinful nature in order to understand what we really deserve. Paul said, by our very nature, we are subject to God's anger or, or wrath, for sin deserves death. And so if we have any hope for a cure, well, then we are in need of a Savior. And so Paul goes on to verse 4, if you're following along with me, in Ephesians chapter 2, and he explains this hope that we have he says, but God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. And so though sin is able to consume our soul like a virus, Jesus was provided as a cure. Which means that Jesus is not just a luxury of following or maybe a person to quote from. No, he, he is so much more. He is an absolute need. For he is necessary to overcome the hopelessness of sin and to give us back the abundant life that God originally created for us to live. Let me remind you of a verse that Ron used it last week, John 10.10. 10. It's one of my favorites. Jesus says this, that the thief who is Satan, he comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And he says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. 
Jesus would also say of our need for him. In John 14, 6, he says, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We often express the truth that Jesus came to be our Savior with this term gospel every once in a while. You may hear that used. In fact, the four books of the New Testament that tell all about how Jesus came and lived and died for our sins as Savior, we will often refer to as the gospels. It's because it's a term that means good news. And it's the good news because of the bad news. Without the bad news, the good news, of course, would just simply be news. But Jesus is the good news, the gospel, because he has overcome the bad news of sin. You know, any good doctor, after diagnosing someone with with a curable, but yet maybe a deadly illness, will follow up the bad news by prescribing the good news then, some sort of method of healing. But if the doctor never gave you such news of contracting a horrible illness, would you ever think to ask him about a cure? Cure? For what? And so it is with us too. That if we will not come to terms with the fact that we are not mistakers, but instead sinners against a perfect and a holy God, well, then we will never fully recognize our need for a Savior. Instead, what we will do is we will try to cover those sins up, and we will try to downplay them. Oh, it's, it's not as bad as it looks. We'll try to convince ourselves that our sin is something maybe that we can overcome, that we can rid ourselves of in our own strength. And with such a perspective, what we will do is we will believe ourselves to be Savior. But the truth is that it may be even worse than we thought. Because if we ever want to be in right standing with God, or, or you might say in God's good graces, well, we will never get there on our own. To make this very point, Jesus gave his very first sermon in Matthew chapter 5. And, and he started with the law, which made perfect sense to the Jewish audience. And he spoke about good deeds being a shining example to, to everyone. It was a message that they would have been very familiar with. Certainly many of them would have given some applause. I'm sure there were some amens thrown up from the back. Oh, the sermon had such a promising start. But the people grew more and more tense the longer it went on. Jesus, referring to the law, said, you know, of course, that you aren't supposed to murder another person. 
But I tell you that even if you're angry with them, well, then you've committed the same offense. You're a murderer too. You deserve the same punishment. Oh, and the crowd grew a little uneasy. (laughs) No one really likes being labeled a murderer. Jesus also said, of course, you're also aware that you aren't supposed to sleep with someone who you aren't married to. But I tell you that even if you look lustfully on another person, you've committed the same offense. You're an adulterer too. You deserve the same punishment. Wow. No one wanted to make eye contact. Now, can you imagine what these good Jewish people must have been thinking? Jesus, are, are you kidding me? That's impossible. Oh, but now, now they were beginning to understand They were beginning to see the reality of their situation, that their sin was even worse than they thought. Jesus even says to them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, just in case, like they weren't quite catching on, he says this, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And at that, oh man, he should have dropped the mic and walked off stage. Jesus out because the crowd would have been stunned. See, we read through the Gospels now and we normally think of the Pharisees as being the bad guys of the story, right? Because Jesus will rip on them quite often. But back then, in that day, no, they were, they were seen as the good guys. They were revered for living perfect lives. I mean, think about this. Their full-time job was to be good. (laughs) To follow all of the laws perfectly. And so when Jesus says that if you want to get to heaven, your life is going to have to be lived more perfectly than the Pharisees, well, that was impossible. Everybody knew it. Jesus was making them aware of their need for a savior. That they were going to have to put their faith in something much bigger than just themselves. And so the Bible teaches that life depends on faith. Listen to what comes next in our Ephesians passage there. In verse 8, he continues... And Paul says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. Or many translations will say that it is through faith. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. No, none of us can boast about it. Faith, then, is the only way to true life. But sometimes, we can treat faith like a solid plan B. Because I think that if we're really honest, sometimes a faith in God can become something that we just simply try to 
add to our life. Like it becomes maybe one of our many priorities that we have. And the Bible describes a genuine faith as really kind of being the exact opposite. It it means having no plan B or no other priorities that would compete with our priority of growing in a relationship with God. If you've read through those Gospels, you may remember the story of the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and, and he said, you know... I think I'd like to have the kind of life that you're offering. And Jesus basically tells them that in order for you to have that, you're going to have to want the life I can give you more than the life you can make for yourself. And so you know what Jesus asked them to do. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go off and I want you to sell everything you have. I want you to give that money away and then... Once you have nothing left to depend on but me, Jesus would say, then you'll be ready to receive the life that I can give you. It's one of those difficult stories that compels us to question what, if anything, would I not be willing to give up for my faith in God? Or is there anything in my life that's possibly a greater priority to me than growing in a relationship with him? And it says there in that story that Jesus cared deeply for this young ruler. But he also knew that this guy didn't yet see his need for a savior. He obviously didn't feel that an abundant life was solely up to a faith in Jesus. Because it would seem that what he was really depending on was his wealth to provide him for a great life and such things as security, peace, happiness. But we get fooled when we think that anything outside of God can provide us such things. And so God will ask us to stake our whole life on his, to put all of our faith in him to save us from a meaningless existence and from sin and death. And the good news is that God has offered it to us by allowing Jesus to die on the cross, pay the death penalty for our sins. So that by having a faith in him as our savior, we may have new life now and for all of eternity. But it doesn't come by earning it. It comes by accepting it. At one point, um, my daughter, when she was young, got sick. And it was just the usual symptoms. You know, stuffiness, fever, some body aches, nothing unusual until she stopped walking. She complained of her legs hurting. And when she would try to stand, she had such pain in each leg that they would actually begin to shake 
underneath her body weight. And my wife, who tends to keep her cool very well, says, I'm sure it's nothing to worry about. Me? She's got polio. I'm sure of it. I know there hasn't been a case in like 50 years, but she's got it. That's where my mind goes. And so we took her to the doctor. The doctor gave us good news, said, you know, I think it's just the effect of a really bad virus. I think it's going to wear off. And I can remember that night. My wife and I were upstairs in our, in our home, and we yelled downstairs to our kids to begin getting ready for bed. And my daughter, who was lying on the couch, called back up to us through obvious tears. I can't do it. Daddy, can you come carry me? And so I, of course, I, I knew that she couldn't make it on her own. And so I, I went down and I picked her up and, and I carried her up the stairs myself because she couldn't do it on her own. And that's what Jesus has done for us. See, God knew that we couldn't make our way up to him. And so he came down to us. And just as my daughter became dependent on me to do something that she couldn't do on her own, well, we are dependent on Jesus for new life. And it's by giving him the old one. And so in the following verse, Paul describes this new kind of life. In verse 10, he says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Jesus came and he died so that by putting our faith in him as Savior, we can have new life and not just try to fix or maybe improve upon the life we have now. God's not so interested in trying to improve upon the hot mess we got going on in our lives. He wants to create us anew. In 1 Corinthians 15, 22, it says, Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. It's because when we say yes to Jesus, his spirit comes into us, we receive it, and it goes to work in our life as we will allow him, and it creates us anew. And a lot of times, well, many of us know that isn't always a quick process. And in fact, that's not even a process that is always finished this side of heaven. But when we allow God's spirit to work in us, we find ourselves becoming more and more like him, throwing off the old self and becoming new. In fact, Paul would say it this way in Galatians 2.20, that my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And with this new life, oh, we will still experience the symptoms of sin. There's always going to be heartache 
and hassles as a result of it. But for those who have put their faith in Christ, the infection no longer results in death. For God provided a vaccine in the form of Jesus. And so the choice is ours. To stay the old portrait of ourselves, or like Paul says, become the masterpiece that God always intended us to be. After the Spanish flu had devastated much of the globe in 1918, it was wild that it had virtually disappeared by the summer of 1919. And can you imagine what life must have been like? I mean, just a year earlier, businesses were shut down. People were confined to their homes. Death was the new normal. Many people even thought that this was the end of the world. But with the virus suddenly gone, the next year, new life began. And though many once had no hope for a future, they now were given a second chance on life. It's the same opportunity given to us when we accept Christ as our Savior. The worship band can come up. We're going to enter into a time of communion, which we do each week here at Journey. And it's simply a time of prayer and reflection where we will take the cracker and we will be reminded of Jesus' body that he willingly gave for us as a sacrifice. And we will drink the juice, which reminds us of the blood that he shed so that we can have forgiveness for our sin. And this morning, as we do that, during this time, would you speak to God Maybe about where you find yourself this morning. And possibly you might even speak to him about the next steps you know you need to take towards him. For some, it might mean that you're ready to stop treating sin as though it's just a mistake. Maybe if you've never done so before, you're ready to admit that your life is being really lived in rebellion to God. Because it's never been his word or maybe his ways that have driven you. And so this morning, if you're ready, you can give your life to him. You can say a simple prayer. You can say simply, God, I acknowledge my sin and my need for a savior, and I want you to come into my life, and I want you to begin making me new. Or maybe you're here this morning, and you've acknowledged your sin. You've professed a faith in Jesus before. But maybe you need to stop living like he's just a plan B to your life. And maybe you would tell him this morning, you would make some sort of commitment to him during this time of communion to make him your main priority rather than constantly being the last resort that he would become your first. And if you're the group of people that maybe have accepted this 
blessing of new life and you find yourself living it, then this morning you get the opportunity, just sort of as Paul does through this passage, to be reminded of what was so that we may grow an even greater appreciation of the new life that we have now in Christ. In fact, there was a little nursery rhyme that became popular in 1919. And it went like this. There was a little girl, and she had a little bird, and she called it by the pretty name of Enza. But one day it flew away, but it didn't go to stay, for when she raised the window, influenza. And, and as the kids <laughs> probably skipped rope to the rhyme, and, and people recited it often, people re, were reminded of what wasn't long ago. And by remembering what was, they grew an even greater appreciation for what they had now. It's what we get the opportunity to do each and every week through communion, where we celebrate the fact that Jesus has rescued us from the old life, from death and sin, and he has given us a new life to embrace. So let me pray for you. Then you can go, you can grab those elements, spend that time on your own, and speak to God where you're at and where you want to go with him. Lord, I thank you for this group, and um, we just, boy, we thank you for the new life that we have in you. Lord, forgive us when we fail to realize that, or maybe we've placed other things as priorities in life. Lord, this morning, even through this time of communion, God, would you help us, maybe it's course correct. Maybe it's give our life to you for the very first time. What a cool thing to do. And so, Lord, we just give you this time that you would speak as we speak to you. Lord, we love you. May you move among us, we pray. In your name, amen.